Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be doing verses 1 through 13. Not all that many verses, but massive in content and massive in impact and significance. So we better pray. Father, we come to you right now and we rejoice uh, that we can even come to you, that you hear our prayers. That's, that's not a, a given and that's not something that we deserve just because uh, of who we are or anything like that. That is something that has been made possible because of Christ. And so we rejoice and we, we praise you that we can come to you and bring our needs, bring our, our dear ones who don't know you, we can bring them to you and, and you work in those situations. We can bring our sick ones to you and you work in those situations. And uh, we come this morning together and we ask that you would work even this morning. Ask that you would uh, move by your spirit, that we would hear from you, from your word, that we would be instructed, that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up, that we would be convicted, that we would be moved by what is in your word here, that you would speak to us. Have your way this morning. We submit to you and we submit this time to you. We pray that you would be glorified and that you would work in us to build us up and accomplish all you would in us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? So we're going to take bite one right now. And uh, we're, we're going to read through verses 1 through 13. And you will, you will see, if you don't already the massive weight and significance of this passage and what it contains. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. What does this mean? What does this mean? So we're going to look at this passage today that has very great significance and talks about fireworks, talks about an incredible event. And so we want to talk about baptism in the spirit and what that means and we want to talk about tongues and the significance of that and we want to talk about what this means for us and how to understand that and so uh, let's move right into it we're going to uh, talk about the baptism in the spirit 
And we're, we're going to see that baptism in the Spirit, which is what I'm arguing is what is happening right here, is something that they expected from before. It was something that they had anticipated already. They knew this was coming, I'm certain. They didn't quite know what it was going to sound like or look like. But they knew it was coming because they had been told. John the Baptist had told them in, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16 that uh, his own baptism, though it was momentous, was just a baptism of water. But there's going to come one who's going to baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, he says there in, in, in 3.16 that he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so they had been told from the very beginning that this thing was coming, this event was going to come. And Jesus himself actually had spoken of the same thing. We talked about it in one eight, right? It's our memory verse that uh, they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And he said that that is going to be an imminent thing. And so they knew to expect it. They knew that it was going to come, that this event was going to happen. And of course, if you know your Old Testament, you know that it's not even a, a recently expected event. It had been promised from long before that in the book of Isaiah 32:15 we read that the Spirit will be poured upon us from on high. So it was an expectation from long ago, even back in Isaiah, that this was going to happen. The Holy Spirit was going to come upon His people generally, and not just the special people. And of course, in our in next week's uh, discussion, we're going to look at Peter's sermon, and he looks at the events around him and says, this is what happened, uh, was described in the book of Joel. And so, of course, this was expected. This was something that was going to come. It was, it was part and parcel with the coming kingdom of God that the Holy Spirit would come upon uh, all people, all of God's people, and so that this, would, uh, this was a blessing that they had anticipated, though I'm certain they didn't know what it was going to look like per se. What does this baptism mean? What's the significance of the whole thing? Well, if you bring up the term baptism in the Spirit or baptism of the Spirit or Holy Spirit baptism in, uh, amongst evangelicals, you'll find that there's quite a bit of confusion. That there, there are wildly differing opinions about what this means and what the significance of it is. And so we want to talk about, first of all, what it means. And then second of all, you'll see we're going to move to what it does not mean. The way we solve these problems, the way we try to understand what biblical phrases mean is we want to look up uh, where the Bible talks about those things. And when we talk about baptism in the Spirit or baptizing in the Spirit, there are seven different references. And if you have your bulletin in front of you, you have uh, this yellow sheet. This is our, our Connect Group study guide that we go through. Some people call it homework and other people don't like it when it's called homework. So we call it a study guide. Makes it all better. But you're supposed to work on it at home before you come to your connect group. And uh, But if you look at number three there, you'll see a list of verses. And uh, I'm, I'm summarizing those verses. So you, you have them all listed there for you. Um, and I'm going to summarize them. But there are seven different references to this idea of baptizing in the Spirit. And in Greek language, the word order is less significant uh, it's, it's not insignificant because it can, it can uh, convey meaning or emphasis. But in English, we must communicate one word after the other in appropriate orders. Otherwise, you mess things up. Greek is not that way. Greek has the ability, like any other language that's highly inflected, to be able to switch things around and say things in different ways. And so um, you'll see when, with our last verse that we look at that it sounds different to our ears in English, but it looks just the same in Greek. The first four references that we talk to uh, there, we see they are um, the quotes from John the Baptist. 
contrasting his own water baptism with the baptism of Jesus that was going to be baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's the first four references, the ones that are in the Gospels there. So that's four of the seven total references to baptizing in the Spirit, and they have to do with that promise that I just read of uh, that John the Baptist made, that, yeah, I baptize you with water, but there's going to be one who comes who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The fifth re- reference there is in Acts 1-5, and it's just before the ascension, and uh, it, uh, Jesus is about to go back to the Father in heaven, and he tells the apostles, wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the point is, what John had promised is now imminent. Not many days from now. It's about to happen. It's about to happen. So that's the fifth reference. The sixth reference is later on in Acts. It's Acts chapter 11 and verse 16. And uh, Peter is uh, it, there. It's, it's telling the story about P- Peter's interaction with um, with the Gentiles in Caesarea and how they received the Spirit. And it was very similar. And there was speaking in tongues. And it was very similar to our Acts chapter 2 scenario. And Peter, reflecting back on it there in 11.16, says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he was looking at that event in chapter 11, and he was reflecting back on this event that happened in, in chapter 2 that we're going to talk about right now. That's the sixth reference. The final reference is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And it reads a little bit different, and that's why I, I talked about Greek grammar a little bit there, that words can be put in different order for different reasons, and yet it's clear what they mean. And so I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 is making the argument that this is, this is an experience that happened that every single Christian has had happen. We were all baptized in one spirit. And so, uh, so that's what he's saying there. He's making the argument that this is something that's not, it didn't just, just happen in Acts chapter 2 or it doesn't just happen in certain circumstances. It's something that every single Christian has in common with every other Christian. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And so, by looking at these verses and, and looking at the theology of what's talked about here, what does baptism in the spirit mean? What does it mean? Well, essentially, it refers to the initial receiving of the Holy Spirit. A person can never be baptized with the Spirit more than once because a person can never become a Christian more than once or can never more than once initially receive the Spirit. Likewise, every Christian has been baptized with the Spirit because every Christian has the Holy Spirit living within them. And so this is an event that each one of us who is in Christ has experienced. It's that initial reception of the Holy Spirit. A couple of verses to look at here. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit in his heart as a guarantee. He says similarly in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him you also, 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so when I read about baptism in the Spirit, I think of these verses and, and I see that the argument that's being developed in the New Testament, the explanation for what baptism in the Spirit is, is that it is the initial reception of the Holy Spirit by a Christian. Well, that's what it is. What, did it, what is it not? What is the Holy Spirit not? And you've, uh, what, excuse me, what is the baptism in the Holy Spirit not? And you may have heard uh, different arguments. I'm certain you have if you've listened to the radio or read books and you've all done those things. Uh, if you've talked to Christians, maybe from other denominations or from a different uh, denominational background, you've heard different teaching on what baptism of the Spirit is. But here's what the baptism of the Spirit is not. This is just a, uh, an assortment. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a secondary or additional manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's not a secondary thing. It's not a later. It's not additional. It's not an occasional event in the life of, of a believer to bestow special gifting or power for life or ministry. That's not what the baptism of the Spirit is. Baptism of the Spirit doesn't just come for believers who ask for it. The Holy Spirit does act in special ways in the life of a believer to strengthen, to sustain, or empower the Christian for service, for ministry. But that's called the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit, which is mentioned in our passage. And it's important to keep these distinctions clear. And here's why. Here's why this is important. This isn't just a rabbit trail. This isn't just a curiosity for me because I read about these things. It's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, because the Bible makes a distinction between the filling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit. Now, in our passage right here in Acts chapter 2, it explicitly says they were all filled with the Spirit. And so this is a filling of the Spirit, but this is the initial time. And that initial time is called the baptism of the Spirit. And so that is that initial reception of the Spirit. So it's important that the Bible keeps those things clear, that though they may refer to the same event, yet we, we dare not confuse what those things are. There are, different, uh, there are different categories from one another. So we need to keep those distinctions clear uh, because the Bible does. And second, because... Chasing an experience of certain manifestations of the Holy Spirit has dangerous potential to distract us uh, from what the Christian life is really about. The Christian life is really about Christ, not seeking an experiential uh, situation with the Holy Spirit. I, I have known believers, and some to their own destruction and some not to their own destruction, who have sought those experiences. They've chased them in various ways with, with, with different means, and they, that experience is all important to them of experiencing the Holy Spirit or experiencing this particular thing. And, and it has led numbers of them that are in my brain off the track because they need to do something new to experience that thing over again. And... Studying your Bible doesn't give you that experience. It's usually some other kind of emotional thing. And so I'm not against emotional things, but I'd better have the Bible at the center of it. And so I've seen people led astray at seeking after their own uh, experiences with the Holy Spirit. And certainly the uh, all of the 120 who are the ones talked about here, certainly they had this incredible experience with the Holy Spirit. 
I'm not, I'm not uh, talking down to experiences with the Holy Spirit, but that is not what we as Christians are to be seeking after. We are to be seeking after Christ. The Christian life is about seeking Him. It's about knowing Him. It's not about seeking an experience. Experiences come and go, and sometimes they're wonderful, and sometimes they're few and far between. That's not our goal, and that's not our pursuit. We are pursuing Christ. But, you say, we do see the believers at Pentecost speaking in tongues. So what's that all about? So that brings us to our second major topic for this morning, which is speaking in tongues. And uh, first of all, we want to mention that God affects speech. When you look through the Old Testament, you read through the Old Testament, cruise through it in your mind, you can see that the presence of God affects speech in the Old Testament. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Numbers chapter 11. The Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to Moses and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And what was the result of that? Well, verse 25 says, as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Something changed about their speech because God was present. Something changed about their speech. First Samuel 10, it's a very similar thing. The spirit of God rushed upon Saul and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, is Saul also among the prophets? And so it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the proverb, uh, the, the prophets? And so you can see that speech is affected. They were, he was prophesying. He was speaking differently. He was, he was, uh, it changed the way he talked and people could look and listen to him and say, yeah, he's prophesying. That's not normal for Saul. He doesn't normally do that. For Samuel 19, the same thing happens uh, because Saul had sent several servants to go and essentially arrest David. And when they got close to where David was with, with Samuel, they began to prophesy. And this happened two, three times. Their speech was changed. And so you see that throughout the Old Testament, which of course the apostles knew they had been raised on, this was nothing new to them, the presence of the Lord often caused changes to the way people would speak. And when he would show up in special ways, it would change the way they spoke into prophesying. It was something that they had expected, something that, uh, that they, reflecting back upon the Old Testament, would have seen and would have understood uh, that, that change of speech can be the evidence of God being there. But what kind of change of speech was this? Well, we can see that in our passage in Acts chapter 2, this is a change of speech. It's language for the purpose of communication. It's for the purpose of communication. And you think, well, of course language is for the purpose of communication. But sometimes a discussion about tongues and uh, has, has the idea that, well, it's just communication only between you and God. But you can see that in this passage right here, it's specifically and explicitly for the purpose of communication on a human level, from human to human. And so verses 6 and 7 tell us that the people from other parts, uh, from other parts of the world with other languages, they were hearing speech in their own native language. So they had come to Jerusalem from, you know, Parthia or whatever, and they were hearing their home tongue. That's weird. These guys are speaking my language I grew up with. They're not speaking Latin or Greek or Aramaic, which would be the three languages you would expect in Jerusalem. They were speaking my home language, right? Verses, verse 11 says the same thing. We are hearing them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were hearing in their own native language. People who had come in from out of town or had moved in from out of town were hearing them in their own language. And they were, they were hearing clearly enough and well enough what was going on. They were understanding the speech from the, from the disciples well enough to understand they're talking about the mighty works of God. 
So they weren't just recognizing yeah, syllables. That kind of sounded like, that sounded a little bit like Russian. or that sounded No, they heard clear, clearly enough to be able to say, they're talking about the mighty works of God. They heard what was going on. The purpose of tongues at Pentecost uh, has two parts. And the first part is as a phenomenon to demonstrate the presence of God, that God was doing something very big. He was doing something very new. And of course, Pentecost... In Acts chapter 2 is a big, big transitional time. Think of the Old Testament and think of even, even during the life of Christ and, and up to that point, there had never been a pouring out of the Spirit like this. There had never been what we call a democratization of the Spirit so that the Spirit is shared amongst all believers. He's given to all believers. That had never been the case in the Old Testament. This was the first time this was happening. This was a fulfillment of prophecy. And so this was a phenomenon to show that God is at work. And tongues would have been a way to indicate that to these people because they knew their Old Testament. And they could know that, hey, it's like they're prophesying, kind of like Saul and Saul's servants and those the 70 elders with Moses, etc. And so they, uh, they, they would have recognized that, especially in connection with the sound of rushing wind. And the vision, uh, the, 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 the visible fire, tongues of fire that came and rested over people's heads. The sound of rushing wind is evidence of God's presence. You see that all through the Old Testament also. Think about the giving of the law in, in uh, Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20. You have the same sort of phenomenon going on. And the same thing with the tongues of fire. The, the, the presence of fire, think about Exodus, and what led them through the wilderness. Well, it was the it was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. That this is this is representative of God's presence. That that loud sound, the presence of fire, and then the tongues. That would have been like like a neon sign to people. God is at work. He is doing something. So that's the first purpose of tongues in Pentecost. But from our passage and from listening to the response of the people around them, it seems like it's a very clear thing that a second purpose was communication. These were tongues given for the purpose of communication so that the visitors from out of town or the people who had moved there from out of town were hearing in their native tongue and hearing well enough to understand what was going on. And these were languages that the apostles, the disciples, had not studied. They didn't go to language school to learn German so they could go and preach in German. They, these were languages they had not learned. It was miraculous and it was from God and it was for the purpose of communication. The intelligibility of their communication is important here. These tongues were given for the purpose of communication. It was not a confusing time. It was a clarifying time. And so that leads us to our, to our third point here of Babel reversed. Remember the Tower of Babel and the events that go on there in Genesis chapter 11? And the whole earth, Genesis 11, 1 starts with this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That's how it starts out. And, of course, you know how the story of the Tower of Babel ends. They've gotten together. They've decided they're going to build this great tower for the glory of their name. And, and God comes down and he, he confuses their languages and scatters the people. So that at the beginning of the, of the chapter, they all spoke the same language. And at the end, there's a diversity, a confusion of languages. So that it causes division amongst the people and, and they're no longer able to work together in that self-glorifying way. And so that is what happened at Babel. And of course, we still experience the effects of that. When you travel through Europe or you go somewhere else and when we go to Africa, you're, I mean, we hear French and Swahili and, and Kirundi and all other kind of languages that I don't have any idea about. Because we live in a, in a, in a time of language confusion. 
But there's a picture here of what's going on at Pentecost. It's as if that, that curse of Babel is being reversed. And of course, it's not completely reversed because you still have to learn German if you want to speak to someone who speaks only German. But, but it's a picture, a foretaste of what's to come, that God is coming and reversing that curse that happened that caused the division amongst people, that caused people not to be able to communicate with each other and to separate and go far and wide. That, that, that confusion is now being reversed. That, that division is now being reversed in Christ. That whereas there used to be a confusion of languages so that you, you couldn't communicate with your neighbor that you used to be able to, and so you separate from one another. Now, on the other hand, you have the Holy Spirit giving the ability to communicate in native tongues to these people. And so the Spirit is allowing communication where there would not have been communication in their native tongue otherwise. And so it seems like God is doing something to, to, to indicate that He's bringing back together, that in Christ we are brought back together and we are not just separate from one another. And I'm not primarily identified as American or an English speaker. I'm primarily identified in Christ. And so when, uh, when we go and travel internationally and meet Christians, they might speak a language that's so utterly foreign to me I can't even recognize it as a language. And yet I sit down and begin to talk about Christ. And there's unity. There's unity. There's, there's no cultural unity. I look When we go to Africa, I've never stood out more in my entire life. I'm, I'm very obviously and palely white, right? And I'm standing amongst a bunch of Africans who are as dark as night, right? We're, we're different in that way. And, um, and it was interesting. In, in Rwanda, I was short for a man. In Burundi, I was very, very tall for a man. Though they're kind of cousin countries, it was weird. But so we have we have a lot of differences, language differences, background, cultural differences, right? The, massively different. When I talked talked to a man who grew up in Congo and heard the stories of of his his growing up, and they're so incomprehensibly different from me, and yet in Christ there is unity, and there's brotherhood, and those things are secondary. Though we speak a different language and though we look different and though we have different experiences and though we have different uh, places in the world and, and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter in Christ. There is unity in Christ. And of course, we're going to see this play out in, uh, particularly in the book of Ephesians. You're going to see unity uh, amongst people who have traditionally been at enmity with one another, brought about because of our unity in Christ. And we have a foretaste of that right here at, uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where we're seeing... Uh, in a sense, the curse of Babel being reversed, or at least a foretaste of that, that in Christ, we don't have to be divided. In fact, in Christ, we are unified, regardless of very deep differences. In Christ, we are unified. And so that's that's a little bit about the tongues that were going on there in, in Pentecost. And, and uh, that that's a whole probably preaching series there, but... You got 15 minutes and now we're going to move on to another point. So a third point, and this one is huge also, and this has to do with blessings in Christ, the blessings that we have, right? The spirit comes to all because of what Christ has accomplished. The, the, the spirit now resting upon all of us, indwelling every believer is a direct consequence of the blessings of being in Christ. So I want to point, first of all, to the relationship between Jesus and the Spirit. And I'm not talking about relationship within the Trinity uh, from all eternity. Of course, we could do that. But what I want to talk about is the relationship between Jesus walking on earth and the Holy Spirit. 
In Luke 1.35, we see that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So his very beginning on earth was because of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove at his baptism. And in the beginning of uh, chapter 4 and 4.1, Luke 4.1 and Luke 4.14, he was full of the Holy Spirit and he went about in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a very close connection between Jesus and the Holy Spirit. His ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And actually, if you think about the very beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he reads from the Old Testament, doesn't he? He stands up and he reads from Isaiah and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Right? He's identifying himself as that, as that fulfillment of the prophecy there in Isaiah. And so he says that in, uh, in 418. He's standing, or he's, he's in Nazareth and he's ministering in the synagogue there. And he says, this is what's going to be characteristic of my ministry is that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In a new way. Of course, there had been, there had been foretastes. Uh, and, and things like that of, of the, of the, this Holy Spirit working in the lives of believers in the Old Testament. And even, even during the time of the Gospels, think of Luke chapter 10 and, uh, the, 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 uh, 72 go out and they minister. And when they return from their, their, they return victoriously from their, their ministry outing, their missionary trip, it says Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. Right? So the, there's a very close connection between Jesus and the Spirit that has never been there before. In the Old Testament, a prophet might have the Holy Spirit come upon him and he would speak. Or a king might have that, or a judge, or some, some situation like that. There was, there was a relationship, there was a connection between the Holy Spirit and certain key leaders. Uh, but it wasn't with every believer, for one thing, and it wasn't in the same lasting kind of way that we see with Jesus. Even David... Right? David, who wrote so much of the Bible, David, who was, who was a man after God's own heart, who had such a close relationship with God, and yet we see him falling into sin. We see him falling short. We see that he can't maintain that relationship. He can't, he can't maintain that close connection with the Holy Spirit. So that in, uh, in Psalm 51, he would pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That, that there's, there's this connection, and I've done something, and I know I, I should suffer the consequences of being separated and so you had a foretaste of that in the Old Testament of connection with uh, the believer and the Holy Spirit, though it was primarily uh, a judge or a king or, or a, a prophet or someone like that. But they were told to expect, Isaiah foretold, they were told to expect there will come a one who doesn't have such a distant relationship with the Spirit. There will come a one whose life will be characterized, whose ministry will be characterized by the Holy Spirit. And so Isaiah the prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And Jesus stands up and says, That's me. And so we see this fulfillment, building in the Old Testament, this idea of, uh, of the believer's connection with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working especially in certain ways, but it's never quite full and it's never quite right. And Jesus comes on stage and says, it is right with me. I am that one. I'm the one that's been expected to be characterized by the Holy Spirit. And so we see that in the life of Jesus, there's a very close connection with the Holy Spirit. We can recognize that. That's easy. Well, what about the Spirit and the believer? What about you and me? Because Jesus is the one who who perfectly walked in the Spirit, who related perfectly, ministered perfectly in the Spirit. What about the relationship between you and me and the Spirit? Well, we know that John promised that Jesus would baptize us with that same Spirit. 
And so that like the 70 elders in Moses' day who benefited from the Lord taking a portion of that or, or taking the, that spirit that was on Moses and, 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 and giving him to, this, to the 70 elders and they prophesied, the result is similar with us. John promised, you remember that happened to Moses? That's going to happen here too, that he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit so that your life will then be characterized in the way Christ is by the Holy Spirit. Unlike the 70 elders in Moses' day, though, our relationship with the Spirit will not cease after a time. that, That was the saddest part of going back and reading that passage about the 70 elders is because they prophesied and then they stopped. And there were two that didn't stop. And someone said, uh, make those two stop also. And Moses said, I wish everyone was like that. I wish every believer prophesied like that. I wish every believer had that ongoing connection, communication, relationship with the Holy Spirit. That was a prophecy. And he didn't know it. Because that time was coming. That time was coming in Christ. And so unlike those 70 elders whose, whose relationship ceased in that, in that special way with the Holy Spirit, ours will not cease after a time. Unlike them, we who are in Christ have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it in glory. We have been sealed. We have that Holy Spirit within us in an ongoing and continual way. And like I said, we may not experience the outbursting of, of the Holy Spirit in powerful ways like we see sometimes where uh, at, at, at this time Peter's filled with the Spirit and he says these magnificent things or so-and-so filled with the Spirit heals someone. Yet we see those kinds of ups and downs, but the Spirit is in continual relationship with us. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And He, His presence, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it in glory. And so that is us. And so that, that thing that was bought by Christ, that, that relationship with the Holy Spirit that was perfect and it was ongoing and it was lasting and it characterized his whole life, characterized his whole ministry, is now ours. And we are included in that because we are in Christ. And so this brings us finally to blessings that are ours in Christ. Peter's going to reflect on this situation in chapter 2 and verse 33 of Acts. And he says, Being therefore, talking about Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He has, he has received that promise. Jesus has kept his part. He has been obedient to the Father all the way to the end, all the way to death, even death on a cross. And now he has ascended back to the Father. He is uh, united with him. He's seated with him. And therefore, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that we see in Acts chapter 2. He has received it in full, and now he turns and he gives it to those who are in him. The pouring out of the Spirit on God's children is part and parcel with the blessings that are ours in Christ. And this is what I want to finish with, the blessings that are ours in Christ. And this is another sermon series on this topic. What are the blessings that are ours in Christ? But here's here's what I want to focus on. We think of Jesus and we think of the ministry of Jesus and all that he accomplished. That he was always obedient. That he never had that ulterior motive that, that you have and that I have. 
You never had that. That spoils what we do because, yeah, I want to do something good for you, but I kind of want credit for it. Spoils that thing, right? Or I have some selfish desire, some selfish motive, or 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 I say something nice to you, but it's really so this person will 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 see that I said something nice or whatever, right? We have these ulterior. He he never had that. He acted out of pure motive. Not only did he do the right things, he did them rightly, so that he was always obedient to the Father, so that he stands before God pure and holy and righteous having completed every good work from his from his perfect baptism to his perfect death he completed every good work and we who are in Christ have that applied to our account what does it take to please God what does it take to satisfy God It takes what Jesus did. And so in this sense and in this sense only do I believe in work salvation. I believe in the salvation that is based on the work of Christ. That is the only way. It takes Him and His perfection and that actual, absolute, utter perfection to satisfy the demands of God. And has He satisfied that? He has. How is that mine? By faith in Christ. What does it take to please God? It takes Christ. And He has done so. And now I am included in Him. So what does that mean for me? He's pleased with me because I'm in Christ. Finally and fully and utterly pleased with me because I am in Christ. Well, what about my sin? Well, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Not only sinless Himself... And not only a human so he could pay the penalty for me, but God incarnate so that his payment could be ultimate and infinite. And so his payment in his blood by his death on the cross is such that it completely covers my sin by faith in Christ. And so what do I have in Christ? I have his perfect, uh, perfect obedience that is pleasing to the Father. And I have all of my own sin covered and forgiven in Christ. Because he paid for it. And that's mine. And I possess that fully because I'm in Christ. That's what I have in Christ. Those are the blessings in Christ. And so when we come to Acts chapter 2 and we see that the Holy Spirit is, is poured out on all believers, not just kings, prophets, and special people, not just apostles, but poured out on everyone who is in Christ. And that is always the case and will always be the case. When we see that happen, we see that we are being included in Christ because who deserves to walk in the Spirit? Who is able to? Who can do such a thing? Only Christ. David tried it and failed horribly along with Moses and everyone else. But Jesus did it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That was characteristic of his life. And he had such a relationship with the Holy Spirit. He walked with the Holy Spirit, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it was perfect and full and complete. And then what does he do when he's raised? Having received the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he pours him out on us. And so we have the Holy Spirit within us. Why? Because we deserve Him? Because we asked for Him? Because we are in Christ. 
And so these are the blessings that I want us to, to focus on as we, as we finish our sermon today, as we finish our, our study, very brief study of this passage today. I want to land on the blessings that are ours in Christ because of what He has accomplished. And that, by the way, is why I don't want to pursue an experience. I want to pursue Christ. And sometimes it'll be a wonderful, big experience. And sometimes it will not. But I want to pursue Christ because He is the one who is the perfect offering of God. He is the one who is perfectly obedient to Him. He is the one who walked perfectly with the Holy Spirit. And then what did He do? He turned and gave me the Holy Spirit because I am in Christ. The blessings that are ours in Christ are incalculable. And I could go on listing them, but I don't want to list them. I want us to understand that we look to Christ and we are complete in Him. And that's where I want to end. We are complete in Christ and only in Christ. What a blessed thing, church. What a blessed thing. How does that lift the weight from us? How does that take us off the treadmill? If if we have some way that we think we can please God by what we do, we don't understand what God's standard really is, first of all, and we don't understand how messed up we really are. And Jesus takes that whole equation out. And he says, I perfectly kept the law. I perfectly obeyed the Father. I paid the price for your sin. And I received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I poured him out on you. And in that way, we are perfected in Christ. What a blessing. I I can't think of a better thing. I can't think of a better position to be in. I, I can't think why I would want to chase anything else but Christ himself. Because he's paid it. Because he's done it. Let's pray. Father, this is amazing. This is incredible to me. And it's uh, liberating to me. I'm so given to think that I can perform in such a way that you will be more pleased with me. Or that if I will just get rid of enough sin in my life, you'll be pleased with me. Or that if I ask enough, you will do wonderful things by your Spirit, and I will see that you are pleased with me. But what I see in all of the Bible takes that whole equation out of the picture. Because of faith in Christ, you are pleased. You look at me and you see Him. You see His perfect works of righteousness in place of mine. You see His payment for sin in place of my horrible sin. And part of the evidence of that is that you pour out your Holy Spirit on me. And such is the case with everyone who's in Christ. And so, Father, I pray this morning that any in here who are not in Christ would trust in Christ, that they would understand that they do not have what it takes to meet such a standard that you put before them, and that there are grave consequences for thinking that it's possible to do so, whereas there is perfect and full forgiveness and redemption in Christ. And I pray that they would put their faith in you. I pray that you would redeem them even today. Father, I thank you for this passage that, that, that communicates to me the completed work of Christ. That he was obedient in my place. He paid the penalty in my place. And he himself, who walked in the Spirit always, 
received that spirit to give to us, and he did. So, Father, I rejoice, and I I pray that we would all rejoice in that. I pray that we would lift up Christ, that we would look to Christ, that we would trust in him, that we would seek after him, and not some experience or uh, or any other thing, any other idol that might come into our our eyes, but that we would seek Christ, that we would love him. I, I pray that you would lift up Christ in our minds, and that we, in our conversation with one another, and in our church, and in our lives, would lift up Christ, because he is perfect, and he has accomplished it. Father, I rejoice and I praise you. I pray in Jesus' name. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen and amen. May God bless you all and you are dismissed.